If you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, that's found on page 571 in one of the church Bibles, if you are using that this morning. And in just a moment, um, we'll read that together. But I wanted to share some of my conclusions as I've driven around my neighborhood recently. Christmas is coming. Conclusion one. And second conclusion, it seems to be a time when people are really excited. And I think the reason why is Christmas time holds out a lot of promise for certain things that we expect and are planning for. Otherwise, why would people put out all these lights on their houses, blow up these inflatable snowmen, and even put out pink flamingos with Santa Claus hats? I mean, there's obviously time to get excited. I mean, even the song that we started our service with this morning, Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw your cares away. And December seems to bring out this feeling in us that of all the times of year, January doesn't cut it, but December, that's a time when we can just say, there's nothing to worry about. The, the future is bright and we're holding out for the promise of good stuff come December 25th. I think about children who believe this. Um, they think that one gift is going to help them and get them what they want. So the kids say something like this, and they make a promise, right? They're promising something. They say, if you just get me that one gift, I won't ask for anything else. Maybe your kids have tried that one on you. Um, that usually is not something that they keep. Spouses, you know, we at this time of year can... Uh, talk with their spouses and say, we're, we're only going to spend X amount of money on all of this holiday stuff. But come January 1st, as you look back on your budgets, see if you keep that promise, all right? But you have hope that that's possible. There's somebody here this morning I know who is the loving mother of the home, and you have traditions that you value. You get the table set just right, the tree decorated just so, every little nook and cranny is filled with the elf on the shelf or the manger scene, the angel on the treetop. And your hope is that if everything is just right, everybody will forget how angry they are with each other and stop arguing for just a couple of days. All right, and you're, you're holding out a promise that those traditions maybe can manage that for you. What I think of all the promises this season, if that's all we've got, that's not quite enough to help us out. You know, I think of others in our congregation today who are dealing with promises that have been broken. I think of those with loved ones who have died. And you feel as if you were, were robbed of a promised time that you would have had with those loved ones. I think of those whose spouses have been unfaithful in their marriages. And the tragedy that that is, even to hear current cases that all of us pastors have heard about recently. And we grieve and we think a promise is a promise, and it's meant to be kept. But obviously, some have not kept their promises this time of year. And children rebel. You may think that if God promised that you raise a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think sometimes we're disillusioned when our kids rebel and go their own way. In this time of year, that's not to say that God doesn't work through you raising your kids well, all right? But 
there's not a guarantee that you do X and you'll get Y and Z as a result. And you might be frustrated and thinking promises were made, promises have been broken, and this is a difficult time of year. And what I would encourage you in is to realize this is the state of things that even December can't fix. Christmas time addresses them, invites us to throw those cares away, but ultimately we need to know what to do with those cares that we feel. Our society really does thrive on promises that are made and kept. And when those promises are not kept, there's disorder. You make a promise to someone so that they can make plans. You know, in one way, if I tell my wife I'll be home at 5.30, but I don't come home until 6.15 because I got caught up in work, that's happened before. Um, that produces a bit of disorder because she's hoping I'll come home at a certain time. And then when I don't, that promise was not fulfilled. I've had to learn that is a promise that I make. But friends, what happens when we realize everybody makes promises and everybody breaks promises? That's really the reality. We are at root promise makers and promise breakers. Isaiah, the prophet in the 700s, uh, 700 years before Jesus arrived, he recognized this about himself. And this was after his encounter meeting the Lord. And he said about himself, woe is me. I am lost, utterly lost. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, the prophet, recognized that both he and those with whom he shared a nation with were a people of promise makers and promise breakers. Why is this so relevant? Why is it so crucial that we understand the solution to our promise breaking and to the woes that we face because of those promises broken? We must reckon with and Isaiah 7, our text today, confronts us with the God who makes promises and always keeps them. The God who meets us in our promise breaking, in our woes, in our unclean lips, and speaks to us with certainty about what He is doing and commands us, counsels us to follow Him and provides even a sign for what it will look like when God moves. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. And those of you who are able to stand, I know you've just gotten settled with your notebooks and things, but if you would, please stand if you are able, and let's read verses 1 to 14 of Isaiah chapter 7. Follow along now as I read. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, 
Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Father, please bless the reading and also the attention given to your word spoken this morning. I pray you would change our hearts as a result of our time with you so that we would follow you and do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning, we're looking at the promise of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, just a spoiler alert. This means God with us. You may have heard that as Katie Dodson read that this morning uh, down here from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew interprets Emmanuel when he speaks of it in that book when the angel gave that pronouncement to Joseph. And we get taught in that sense. Emmanuel means God with us. A very crucial thing for us to get this morning. God's promise in this text is that God himself would be with us humans. And that is the best promise. And really, it is the promise that God has given from the garden to the actual arrival of Jesus Christ. The theme today is this. God promises to send, and we could say this, he promised to send Emmanuel. And we must order our lives under the certainty of his promise. As people now living on this side of Emmanuel's arrival, we're looking forward to him coming again. When we speak of Advent this time of year, Advent means coming. He came the first time in the birth of Jesus Christ. He was born and came and arrived, but we look forward to the time when he is coming again. Uh, this week and in the next three weeks following, we'll stay in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's prophecies and look at various aspects of this promise that Emmanuel would come. And today we're looking particularly at the promise of his first arrival and what that meant and what that means for us. Our outline this morning is on the screen. Uh, we'll walk through these three points. The trial of faith, the Lord provides counsel in that time of trial, and the Lord promises a sign. So as we go through, I'll highlight some things about this time period of King Ahaz, and I will try my best to apply it now for your good and my good and the Lord's glory. All right, so the trial of faith. Look again at verses 1 and 2 for the background. 
It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Here's the background to what's going on. We're located in this text in the southern kingdom of Judah, 200 years after the biggest family dysfunction this world has ever seen. Think about it. The, the 12 tribes came into the promised land under the direction of Joshua and were told to seize the land and set up the kingdom that God would give them there in the land. The best king that they ever had, David, embodied the rule that God desired, for he was a man after God's own heart. And David was promised by God, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that someday God would provide a king through David's line who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and would never get off. He would actually reign forever. And David was overwhelmed. Who am I that the Lord had promised me in my house this? There was nothing particularly special about Judah. You trace its history, Judah had very wicked beginnings. But God was gracious and promised a son would come through Adam and Eve and then Abraham and ultimately to David, that this one would come who would rule, who would bless the nations, and who would conquer the enemy Satan. He would do all these things, and the promise of God now is highlighted at this age of redemption in the year 735, 200 years after the brief civil war that happened between the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. As it exists now, the 10 northern tribes, what are called Israel, don't be confused with what we regard Israel today. Every time I encounter this, I have to review the history. That war or that seceding that happened, um, happened right after King Solomon died. As one of his sons continued the rule in Judah, where Jerusalem is, and another man took the throne and rallied around him the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Now, 200 years into that, there's been so many ups and downs, so many failing kings who, who followed their own wisdom, did not yield to God. A few good ones sprinkled in here or there. But on the whole, the northern kingdom of Israel is completely apostate, meaning they've rejected God. And Judah is not much better. While Judah will continue on for another few years, Israel is about to be destroyed and carried off into captivity. And Syria, their neighbor, likewise, is about to be taken to captivity. But at the moment, it seems like those two nations, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, are the biggest threat that King Ahaz down in Judah has yet seen. So what's the deal? Well, to the north of Israel and Syria is another nation, not to be confused with Syria, called Assyria. It's a completely pagan nation that was rising in power, ruthless in its hostile takeover of all the territory around it. Um, I've read in a commentary it made Adolf Hitler look like a weakling when you compared him to the leader Tiglath-Pileser III, king of Assyria, in his prime. And his foot soldiers made the Nazi footmen, those soldiers, 
look like no force at all in the way that they ruthlessly tore down homes, took people away, uh, murdered people in cold blood. This was, a, this was Assyria, a, a real threat. And in order to fight against it, Israel went together with Syria, their neighbor, and said, if we can just combine our forces, I think we can hold off this Assyrian threat above us. They knew that Assyria was coming because Assyria wanted Egypt and all of its lush land. And what did it have to do to get Egypt? It had to plow its way through Israel and Syria and Judah to get there. And so the threat is real, and Israel and Syria align, and their hope is that they can get Judah to join them. But King Ahaz refused. He will not join against Israel and Syria to fight Assyria. But Israel and Syria, they're reckless, and they're ready to do anything they can to keep their kingdoms going. So what they do is they plan to invade Judah, to kill Ahaz, and to put their own puppet king named Tabeel on the throne to rule from there. And then to take the armies of Judah so that they can mount a proper defense in their mind against the coming Assyrian hordes. This is the dilemma that King Ahaz is in, and this is the outward trouble. Outward trouble. And that's the trial of faith as it begins. And often our own outward troubles make us enter into a time of trial ourselves. You know, what happens when you have a lack of money for things that you really need? Or what happens when you are struggling physically for so long? Or what happens when people outside of you, people who are around you, are persecuting you, mocking you, making fun of you? That's outward trouble. How did Ahaz respond? Look at verse 2. It says, when they were told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What we see about a trial of faith is that outward trouble is made even worse when there is true inward trouble. And this is the, the reaction of the people. I think you might shake too, but the reality is it says they shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The idea here is that they are, they are terrified by what's coming. And the reason for this, I mean, you would assume that As a threat like this comes, if a man really has the promise of God that God says a man will always sit on the throne of David, and if you yourself are a son of David, and you know that God will not reject his promises, you would think that you could stand against that outward pressure as it comes to you. But the problem was there was no inward strength. There was no faith in Ahaz. You could write down 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. This is how Ahaz is described. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Here's what we learn about Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David has done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In the best of times, Ahaz worshipped 
any God that he could find, whether that God was one who promised a good crop, whether it was one who promised that there would be fertility in the land for all of the wives so that more sons would be born and fight in the armies, or another God who would bless those armies before they went out. In the best of times, Ahaz was already predisposed to find any God he could find that he could make some kind of sacrifice for and manipulate things to go the way that he desired. And it says that they were in every place imaginable all over Judah. But the worst of it was, in a time when he was desperate, he sacrificed even his own son to the false god Molech by throwing the boy into a furnace to appease this false god who loved to receive children as a sacrifice. So to this man, as he is out inspecting his fields and out looking at the water conduits around, up comes Isaiah, the prophet of Judah, with his son. I can imagine Ahaz looking at Isaiah with this boy with the strange name. And it's his name, a remnant shall return. Perhaps his own heart was convicted that Isaiah's firstborn son was still around. And as he comes up, Isaiah, who I can imagine was only, I can imagine he was a bit strange, uh, who was a man of confidence at times, but also a man who knew weakness, a man who had been, according to Jewish history, a member of the, the Davidic family who was involved somehow within the palace or the, the political structure of Israel. When he met God, he received a commission to go back to Judah and all of the kingdom, proclaiming about who God really is and about how fall, far short the people had fallen in knowing that God and believing in his promises. So here, Isaiah comes with his son. His name means a remnant shall return. And the message is for Ahaz. Ahaz, about to face these two armies to the north aligned against him, yet not able to make any kind of move against Judah, what God is communicating, even through this boy, a little picture of what God will do, is a message to Ahaz. God will judge, but even in that judgment, a remnant of your people will remain. Isaiah has a message for Ahaz, and this is what he says. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands and at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. And the second point this morning, the Lord provides counsel. His intent is through Isaiah to communicate what Ahaz most needs to hear. And I want to give you two statements from these verses, three to nine, that you can take with you in whatever circumstance you face, whatever your trial of faith may be right now. These are two truths and counsel from the Lord that are timeless. And the first one is this. Got to find it in my notes, sorry. The Lord says, do not be afraid, for I am in control. Do not be afraid, for I am in control. In verse 4, it's, it's very interesting to me, the very first thing the Lord says is, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. 
So is the Lord saying, be careful about what you are going to do and be quiet and not talk about it? Well, actually, literally, this means take care that you do nothing. The Lord knows what Ahaz is about to do. And his plans are to reach out to Assyria. And there's very good reason to think that he's already done this. To reach out to that king, King Tiglath-Pileser. In 2 Kings chapter 16, there's even a transcript of what he wrote to that king. He said, O Tiglath-Pileser, I am your servant and your son. Would you please come down here and rescue me from the kingdom of Israel and the king of Syria? And in essence, that is what happened. All right, looking back now, we can piece those pieces together. Ahaz had already sent out that distress call. But God still comes to Ahaz and challenges him about what he's trying to do. Literally, when he says, don't be afraid of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands, King Pekah and King Rezin, he's saying in modern language, and this is what Pastor Ray Ortland over in Nashville has said one time. He said, don't be afraid of those two smoldering cigarette butts. You know, what do we do with cigarette butts? We step on them and put them out. Get rid of the stink. That's about all they're good for, just to, to stink. All right, and God, in essence, is communicating that very same thing about these two foreign kings. That's how God, Yahweh, seated on his throne, regards the nation's who would dare to confront his chosen people. And that's why when you read down in verse 7, he says, as far as their attempts to come and set themselves up against you, verse 7, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. When the Holy One of Israel, Lord God Almighty, speaks a word, that word will come to pass. And what we need to learn about this God is that as he sits on his throne in control of everything, commanding us not to fear and to take action that we will regret, he speaks a word that says, that which confronts you will not stand. Now, Ahaz needs to heed this advice and the next thing that Isaiah says to him. And the next statement that I said I wanted you to take away that's timeless is in verse 9. In verse 9, part B, it says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Another thing the Lord says here is stand firm in your faith or you will not stand firm in anything. Stand firm in your faith or you won't stand firm in anything. Some ways that you could note this as being translated, you know, it's Hebrew poetry and what it's trying to do is take one Hebrew word that is approximate to another Hebrew word and write something memorable. Today we could write something like this. Are you unsure about God? Then you'll be insecure in every part of your life. Another way even more short, no faith, then no future. It's that stark and that real. And God knows this is how he works. If, if we do not yield ourselves to him, if we do not come to him, with complete expectation that he knows what he's talking about and that we will align ourselves under him, then we have total reason to think that every part of our lives will be a complete uh, mishap. Everything will be wrong. Nothing will be 
right. That's why James, in James chapter 1, speaks that those who seek wisdom from God, yet do not ask Him in faith, believing that God will give it, are like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by everything. He says, let not that person think that he or she will receive anything from the Lord, being an unstable person, unstable in all their ways. So what do we need to take away from this section? We need to learn what God was trying to teach Ahaz. And we need to learn the context into which God was speaking here because the same thing applies today. There are some here who I believe must be this very day trying to respond to a situation of outward trial with a plan of your own to get out of it. I think of those who are in very difficult marriages today. And I, I want to bring this up one more time. Maybe your plan is to get through the holidays, but then to end your marriage once you get through these holidays. God would speak to you this day, and he says, be very careful that you do nothing. I am the sovereign Lord who sits on the throne, and if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm in anything. This is the stark reality of God's practical counsel to us. God knows that whenever we try to get out of a trial that he has brought into our life, we will find that our lives disintegrate and nothing goes right. This is true, too, for those with addictions. And I speak to those with addictions here this morning. Perhaps in great pain, you're seeking a lonely path and not talking to anyone with prescription drugs that you are taking out of bounds or illegal drugs that you are taking in order to help you. And the Lord would say to you, be careful that you do nothing, but bring yourself under my sovereign care and love and walk out in my light and let me help you yield to me. What we need to do today is recognize that faith is not just something that we express to God at the moment of our conversion. Faith is something that we embrace and walk in before God every single day. Nancy Guthrie in her Advent devotional called Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room has this reading on day one. She says, waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promises is what it means to have faith. Now, that's very simple, but I do agree with that. Waiting on God to keep his promises is essentially what it means to have faith. God promises that he will move on behalf of his people. And faith is taking hold of that and saying, I don't care what else happens. I don't care what people say. I don't even care what I feel. I trust this one who is speaking. And I yield my heart to him. That's faith. And that's not just faith at the beginning. That's faith every day. That's faith every day. The essence of being a Christian, Nancy Guthrie says, is placing all our hope in God, knowing we can trust him to fulfill all his promises even the ones that haven't been fulfilled yet. Psalm 1830 says, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. And we believe this about the Lord, Psalm 1830, that every promise that he makes 
proves true. So my friends today, um, Ahaz is one example to us. And God was trying to show love, and he was showing love to Ahaz in the way that he interacted with him. And this comes out most in the third point today. God promises a sign. This is verses 10 to 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Think about the love of God towards this man, an idolater, and one who has murdered. Here's what we read. First, again, in verse 10, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Here's Isaiah's invitation to Ahaz, this wicked king. Ask a sign. Let God prove it to you. He is your God. And that's God ultimately bending low. And this is how our God is. This is the promise of Emmanuel wrapped into a display right here. God with us is a God who bends low to talk with sinners, to be where sinners are, and to offer them an escape from their sin. This is Ahaz's escape from his sin, and God is offering it to him right here in the form of a sign. This is a very kingly thing to accept and to embrace and to do. Um, If you were King Ahaz, and Isaiah the prophet says, ask a sign of the Lord your God that he will be faithful to you. What do you think you would come up with? Some have said, lightning bolts from heaven, or the sun to stop moving in the sky, or the moon to stay in its cycle in the same place all night. I think, call down some chariots of angels with big old swords to get Israel and Syria out of there, right? Open up the depths and let water or flame consume them, yet not hurt any of God's people. You know, God would regulate that sign, I'm sure, how he saw fit. But the sky's the limit. It's as high as heaven or it's as low as hell. And this is what God is inviting he has to do. And his response shows the hardness of his heart and how he is closed off to God. His response is, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. You know, on the one hand, even the Lord Jesus said, It is not right to test the Lord your God. But in this case, the Lord is inviting Ahaz to test him and to call out whatever sign he sees fit. It's a false religion, a false piety, a a false sense of humility. And what's really behind it is this, and this is a crucial lesson for every one of us to learn. The reason Ahaz did not want to accept this sign of the Lord God and to state it and to prove his God is because he knew that if he tested God, that God would come through and he would have to give God the glory. And that's the deal with our interaction with God. God is very concerned that we recognize who gets the glory, and that's God and God alone. He's also very attracted to humble people. He's very attracted to weakness and neediness. But I think we recognize almost intuitively that if we are weak, then we have to admit that we aren't strong. If we admit that we're weak, we admit that we don't have the resources to do all that we need to do. And there's trouble for us to just bend lower than God is willing to bend. But we must. But Ahaz refuses. 
And at this point, the interaction elevates higher than just an interaction with Ahaz. Look in the text again at verse 13. This is Isaiah speaking, not Ahaz. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah, as a spokesman for God, embodies the heart of God and speaks to Ahaz that whereas the invitation was there for God bending low, Ahaz, come into my arms, trust me, and follow my lead. Don't run to do your own thing. But Ahaz would not. And so Isaiah speaks on behalf of the Lord that as Ahaz in himself has failed the test, so the house of David is wearying, Isaiah says, my God. God was Isaiah's God. Isaiah had been undone before the true and living God. And if God had not cleansed him and forgiven him of his sin, Isaiah wouldn't be standing here. Not bold to say these things. But remember, if you have inward strength, you can meet the outward trials with very little trouble at all. Your inner strength comes from being right with God. If you are yielded to God, if by faith you have come to Him and stand on all His promises and believe that they are true and you count on them, then you will see that you grow and you flourish in the house of God as a true man or woman of God should. You would be an oak in the house of God. Nothing would topple you. This is what is held out to Ahaz, and he fails to meet the test, and so does the whole nation of Judah. As Isaiah speaks out, he says, House of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So here's what's at stake. As Judah has failed to produce a king that honors the Lord, in keeping with that promise to David in 2 Samuel, that a king would come out of David's family line who would sit on that throne forever and rule, Ahaz is not going to be that one. His son Hezekiah was a good boy, and he tended to follow the Lord for the most part with all his heart during his earthly reign. Um, but very soon after that, through a cycle of kings, one other good boy named Josiah became a king. But on and on into captivity they went. When they called on Assyria to help them, Assyria came and ultimately attacked them. And when they couldn't beat them, the next guys from Babylon did. So what can we learn here? Well, the Lord does not give up on his people. And even when their sin and rebellion push them away from him, he still pushes forward his promise and keeps it. And I think that's the main thing that we need to learn when the Lord himself promises a sign. There's a lot of debate, friends, about this prophecy and this sign. Let's read it again in verse 14. It says... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In one sense, this sign was given to Ahaz so that in his day, he would know for certain that God was with his people. 
But we know for a fact as well that this sign was fulfilled 700 years later when Jesus was born. There's all kinds of debate about whether this sign given here was for Ahaz and fulfilled in his day. But there's no question at all that the sign was fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So let me give you my thought that at least at some point, because of how Isaiah continues to talk about this childhood would be born in verses 15 and 16, who would grow up in a time, and before he, I believe that's Emmanuel, would know the difference between right and wrong, the nations who were oppressing Judah would be dealt with by God. Now, I leave it to much smarter men than myself to identify who this child was, um, but I think this was an example of prophecy, both in partial fulfillment and full fulfillment, or a type of the fulfillment to come. It's kind of like looking at the Smoky Mountains on the Foothills Parkway. You go up there and you pull off on one of the cliffs or the hills, and you look over and you can see how one mountain range blends into the next and the next and the next, and pretty soon you lose track of what exact mountain you're looking at. It's beautiful, but it's a bit hazy. And I think this is somewhat of how Isaiah was dealing with the word that he was receiving from the Lord. In the sense of fulfillment in Isaiah's day and in Ahaz's day, a child could be born who would, to King Ahaz, serve as a marker, a time marker, of how God would be faithful to take care of those pagan nations. But he couldn't be fully virgin-born. There's only one in all of history who bears that right and who bears that special qualification, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So ultimately, the failure of this king would be solved, and the failure of the house of David would be solved by the coming of the true king. In close, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not preaching all this, but I do want to compare Ahaz with one of his descendants. Did you know that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, would have come from the family that Ahaz was in, this tribe of Judah? And Joseph, I wonder how far from the family tree he fell. I wonder if he was the same kind of apple as Ahaz. Well, look at that text that Katie read for us once again. Uh, the birth of Jesus, verse 18, happened this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, this descendant of Ahaz, he was born in a time 700 years after Ahaz's failure to trust God. 
He's in a nation now that's been invaded so many times, and he now has come back, and he is in a generation that has been there for a while and settled in the land, but a new power, Rome, is in charge. To make matters worse, the, the woman that he was betrothed to showed, showed back up after a time away to be pregnant. Talk about outward trouble. That's a trial of faith if ever there was one. But what is the message that comes to him? Do not fear. Again, that message of God, don't be afraid, for I am in control. And in another sense, he's telling Joseph, if you're not firm in faith right now, you're going to miss a blessing. If you're not firm in faith, you won't stand. But if you are firm in faith, how strong you will be. But Joseph, how you will be my instrument to bring to pass the promise that I made from generations past to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to King David on his throne, and even to wicked King Ahaz, that my son is coming into the world, my king to sit on the throne, my king to crush the head of Satan, my king to enter into the conflicts of all your life, whether they, they be the petty things of politics and, and economics, but the more serious things of sin, waging war against your very soul. Joseph, this is the one who has come to fulfill my promise. And Joseph's response is one of obedience. When God speaks, he obeys. When God promises, he banks his entire life on it and takes action. And so my friends today, if you have to choose between the example of Ahaz and the example of Joseph, they're instructive, but don't miss the one that you're to hold on to. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, my friends, if you have not embraced the promise of God that this is the only one who can save you, that this child, Emmanuel, his son, Jesus, is the only Savior for all people, if you don't embrace that, you will not be firm in anything. But if you come to him today in faith and you yield your life in humility, give God the glory for Jesus Christ and for the promise kept by God. And it continues to be kept until the day that Emmanuel comes back. We'll sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as we close, believing still the promise of God to hold fast to his word, to be with his people.